Savage Products presents Giants of Philosophy, narrated by Charlton Heston. This is number one on Plato. Almost 2,300 years after Plato died, a 20th century British philosopher, Alfred North Whitehead, paid him a brief but striking tribute. The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. It's tempting to judge this statement as a friendly exaggeration, but there are good reasons for taking it seriously, perhaps even literally. Plato and no other first asked and brought together in a systematic way the issues and questions that have defined the work of philosophy ever since. It's no overstatement, then, to say that philosophy came into existence with the thought and writing of Plato. In this sense, later philosophers, as Whitehead asserts, carry on the project that Plato first began. To be sure, the generations of philosophers since Plato haven't always agreed with the answers Plato proposed to his own questions. These disagreements continue up to the present day, and they have at times been bitter indeed. So, for example, another 20th century philosopher, Karl Popper, writes these harsh words about Plato's political philosophy. Plato compromised his integrity with every step he took. He was forced to defend lying, political miracles, tabooistic superstition, the suppression of truth, and ultimately, brutal violence. It may be hard to imagine that these words describe the same Plato Whitehead praised. Yet so it is. And in one respect, there's no contradiction here. Even Popper would agree that in the history of philosophy, Plato must first be reckoned with, today no less than in the past. As for any great writer, we can read Plato's writings now as if he were indeed our own contemporary. We'll find, in fact, that this is the best way of understanding what Plato was attempting to do in his own time. The tribute Whitehead paid to Plato needs to be taken seriously in a second sense as well. The image conveyed to us through Plato's life and work of what it means to be a philosopher. Plato says it's possible to live, to write, and to teach in a way that raises the questions of philosophy not as logical exercises or theoretical possibilities, but as issues that are alive, practical, and most important of all, unavoidable. For Plato, philosophy originates always in the immediate world of everyday life. It's there, in commonplace experience, that people first become aware of what Plato called the sense of wonder. This wonder marks the beginning of philosophical thinking. And in that beginning, philosophy is nothing if not practical. Like people in many generations before us, we often find ourselves driven to ask about the difference between justice and injustice, or between true knowledge and subjective opinions or beliefs. We ask about the line that separates good from evil, right from wrong, and most generally, we wonder for ourselves and for other people about how life ought to be lived, ought to be, what constitutes a full and complete life. These are the questions that set philosophy in motion, not only for philosophers, but for everyone. Just to be capable of reason, the natural capacity that for Plato distinguishes humans from other beings, is to encounter the problems of philosophy. Reason itself wants to know the answers to philosophy's questions. In this sense, philosophy is both natural and inevitable. It's something we can't not do. 
The only question is whether people will do it well or badly, deliberately or unconsciously, and much of what Plato says has to do with how these alternatives are determined. In its Greek origins, the word philosophy means love of wisdom. Philo, meaning love, Sophia, meaning wisdom. Plato believed the love of wisdom is set in motion whenever human reason encounters the events and objects of the world, as it constantly does. Plato's own life was tied in an unusual way to another life as well, that of Socrates, who was Plato's teacher. Socrates remained a central figure in Plato's thought and writings. Even aside from Plato's testimony, other evidence suggests that Socrates was a remarkable teacher. But in addition to his teaching influence, certain historical events of Socrates' life also impressed themselves urgently on Plato, as they did more generally on the city of Athens, where they both lived. The most important of these events in Socrates' life was its end, the fact and circumstances of his death. Socrates had spent his days as a gadfly, a self-appointed teacher. Walking the streets of Athens, he chose for himself the role of questioner, he asked questions of anyone he met. Questions that reflected his own sense of wonder about politics, about ethics, about education. Socrates himself describes this role. It is as though Athens were a large, thoroughbred horse, which because of its great size is inclined to be lazy and needs the stimulation of some stinging fly. It seems to me that I have been attached to this city to perform the office of such a fly. And all day long, I never cease to settle here, there, and everywhere, rousing, persuading, reproving. Since Socrates lived in Athens, the questions he asked applied most immediately to that city-state how it was governed, what the ethical ideals and practices of its citizens and their leaders were. These questions were often embarrassing and annoying. More often than not, the people he addressed couldn't answer him. And since these people sometimes had power, they eventually decided to take action against Socrates, to stop his questions not by answering them, but by silencing the questioner. So Socrates, at the age of 70 in 399 B.C., was brought to trial on trumped-up charges of corruption and impiety. He was found guilty of the charges and then executed. Athens thus attacked the man who, for Plato and others of his students, had become its main symbol of integrity and wisdom. This attack marked a turning point in Plato's life, with lasting consequences for him. Through Plato's writings, Socrates' death has influenced the history of Western thought. Our acquaintance with Socrates' history has an unusual basis. Socrates had quite consciously decided not to write philosophy, but only to speak it, so Socrates left no written record of his thinking. For Socrates, philosophy had to be always alive, in motion, an active process like speaking itself, and this seemed to conflict with what he saw as the inert, inflexible character of written words. Obviously, since Plato did write, he disagreed with Socrates to some extent on the proper role of the philosopher. But even with this difference, Plato remained close in spirit to Socrates. Everything that Plato wrote, with the exception of a number of letters, took the form of dialogues, conversations which involved the exchange of ideas and sometimes arguments among a number of speakers. In these dialogues, 
the speaker who is mainly responsible for the direction in which the dialogues go and the conclusions they reach is Socrates. Like Socrates, Plato believes that the truths of philosophy are not the words that appear on a written page, but the spark that the words strike in the mind or soul, inside the person. So Plato writes in one of his letters, The principles of philosophy cannot be put in words like other studies. Acquaintance with them must come after a long period of instruction and of close companionship. Then, suddenly, like a blaze kindled by a leaping spark, knowledge is generated in the soul and sustains itself there. Plato paid homage to his teacher and also wrote in a way that recreated Socrates' oral method. This process has come to be known as the Socratic method. Because Plato's dialogue presents Socrates as their main character, it's almost impossible to distinguish between Socrates' thought and Plato's. Although he's the author of the dialogues, Plato refers to himself in them only twice, and even then he doesn't speak in his own name. When we hear from Socrates in the dialogues, then, it's not clear whether we're listening to Socrates or to Plato, or even perhaps to someone else. We can't even be certain how literally the words are meant. It'd be interesting to have this information, but it doesn't make much difference in understanding the dialogues themselves. In the dialogues, singly and in relation to each other, the central questions of philosophy are formulated in a way that speaks to the audience, much as if the individual reader or listener were part of a conversation. And of course, the dialogues are conversations. The reader or listener is meant to participate in the dialogue, to find a place for himself there as a character.